What was happening with this relationship was that there was a growing concern amongst golf course operators, owners, and PJ professionals that some of the vendors didn't necessarily have golf course friendly practices and that they were making a lot of money at the expense of the golf course owners and operators. And it had been described almost as a parasitic relationship. There was just a very contentious sense of things and there was a growing tension between, there's a divide between the vendors and those that own the inventory, you know, the, the operators and the PJ professionals. And we're just trying to decide what do we need to do? How do we fix this? And so in 2015, the NGCOA came up with some guidelines for online tea time distribution. And they brought me in to take the original guidelines and update them, turn them into standards for online tea time distribution. Things that could be a step up from a guideline, something that you could hold the vendors accountable to. And really what the Tea Time Coalition wants to do ultimately is to become the consumer reports of the golf industry with regard to online tea time aggregators and software providers. So we want to make sure that owners and operators and PJ professionals have all the information they need so that when they evaluate this thing on a, an annual basis or whenever they're up for renewal, they're able to say, hey, this has been a profitable relationship for us or this hasn't worked out for us in the way that we originally thought. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thank you for joining us and please subscribe, rate, and review the show on either iTunes or our show page at www.mod.golf so that you'll never miss the latest engaging story with my amazing guests. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Jared Williams who is the Managing Director of the Golf USA Tea Time Coalition and an advisor for We Are Golf's Millennial Task Force. So, hey, Jared, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. Thank you, Colin. Uh, very happy to be on today. Excited for the conversation. Good stuff. Well, I'm really excited too, Jared. I, I did have the pleasure of meeting you, I guess kind of indirectly, through a webinar a couple of weeks ago that the Millennial Task Force was hosting with some of my previous guests, including Chris Hart and Sandy Cross. They were on there and happened to hear your voice. And after some of the great insights that you shared with all of us, figured, hey, got to get Jared on the Mod Golf podcast so you can share with our entire listening audience all the great things that you're working on to help grow the game, both from the recreational side and also the growth of the golf industry. So, hey, Jared, starting with that, why don't you tell our listeners and myself a bit about yourself and your connectivity with golf? Yeah, thank you. Uh, and also, thank you for taking the time to listen to me on the previous webinar and finding it interesting enough to invite me on here today to the Mod Golf Podcast. A little bit about myself is I've been around the game of golf for over 20 years as a player and now as an employee in the game. And I've always, since my introduction into the game, wanted to stay around it. I played golf in college junior in college, walking down the hallway, and I, I saw a flyer for a, an internship with the AJGA and ended up doing an operations internship with them. That's the American Junior Golf Association. And through that internship working, I uh, ended up running into one of the parents of one of the golfers on the tour, and she noticed me working and took notice of my work ethic. And she said, hey, Jared, I'm going to have to introduce you to my husband. And I didn't really think anything of it. I thought it was kind of odd be honest with you. Turns out her husband was the general manager of the TPC network. So every TPC branded facility, he oversaw all of that. I ended up graduating from college and going to do a professional golf management PGM internship at TPC Sawgrass. So all the while I was down at Sawgrass, I had already applied to law school. Being an English major, that was one of my goals. Worked my way into the law. And so I faced with a decision to continue on the golf PGM track or to 
take a break from it and try to come back to golf at a later point and go to law school. And so I chose the latter and ended up going to law school at uh, Loyola University in New Orleans. And throughout each summer, I would work in different areas of sports and sport law, whether it was going overseas in Italy and learning about international law or doing an internship in the legal department for the LPGA for a summer. So kind of stayed around that. And then after graduating from law school, I, I worked in college athletics for a bit. We're doing athletic compliance. A lot of folks that have JDs end up doing that because the NCAA rule book is filled with bylaws and legislations and basically a whole bunch of maybes and a whole bunch of different types of rulings and analysis. So it's not that indifferent than the, the actual law that regular practicing attorneys work with on a day-to-day basis. So then, fortunately, I was able to find out about this position here with the Golf USA Tea Time Coalition, which was a nice merger of all of my background. It, it had the golf, it had the, the compliance and the legislative aspect to it with the guidelines and the, the working with the vendors and trying to come up with the relationship that would work best for golf course operators and the vendors. And so that's kind of what led me to this role here at the Tea Time Coalition, which was my first full-time role in golf. So it all sort of came full circle. Right, right. Got it. Oh, that's a, a great intro. So thanks for giving us that snapshot of your life. And it's very interesting that as a law major and wanting to get into the legal profession, did you ever see, I just want to ask you this before we dig into what you do with the Golf USA Tea Time Coalition. So Jared, I'm curious to see when you got into the game as an African-American, did you find it, it quite welcoming in groups like the PGA of America looking for a diversity of not only gender, but also ethnicity and getting more people involved in the game that look more like America? Did you find that quite welcoming or at the beginning and, and how has that changed over the last couple of years in your experience? Uh, honestly, I think it's been a goal to make it more welcoming. I found that it was a little bit difficult for me to turn a lot of my experience with a lot of golf organizations into a uh, full-time opportunity, but it didn't deter me. You know, you just keep grinding away and keep trying to make yourself a more qualified and appealing candidate. And hopefully at some point you'll get your break. And then after that is what you end up doing with it. I think the PGA of America and most folks in the golf industry, they do have a desire to want to work to make golf as a game for players and from an employment standpoint, look a lot like the country does from a diversity standpoint, but it's difficult. I mean, golf, like other industries, was hit by the economy's downturn, and that was kind of right when I was graduating from school. Sometimes it's about opportunity, and then there may not be positions available at the right time. So for me, it was more about those internships and things not necessarily being direct paths to full-time jobs. They were just resume patterns, but hopefully for the groups going forward, and I'm starting to see just from being on the diversity task force and on the millennial task force of We Are Golf, I see a lot of direct higher opportunities for folks that come in from internship or entry level. There's opportunities there, but for me, it wasn't there at the time and no hard feelings on that. You just continue to prepare and try to make yourself the most qualified candidate and things will turn over. I don't think there's a shortage of qualified or interested minorities. I think it's just timing and having things work out the way they need to work out. Like with the current role that I'm in, it just happened to work that the position was almost tailored directly from a reading of my resume. And it just so happened to be that I happened to be a minority. So it was sort of a win-win all around. And it's only going to be a win-win if that minority or myself or whomever is hired comes in and actually hits the ground running and does what they are expected to do. So it's just about getting opportunities and and capitalizing on them so that when the next person of your background or your educational background, ethnicity or what have you, when they come in, they're able to keep the torch going and do sort of the same things in the way that you did or maybe even do them better. 
Absolutely. And I'm sure that the mentorship that you've received over the last couple of years from people like Dr. Michael Cooper, who we've had on the podcast earlier last year, and the work that he's doing with the Diversity Task Force, that it just encourages you, I'm, I'm sure. Sandy Cross uses a great line, in order to be it, you have to see it. So meaning that you have to see people that look like you, have similar backgrounds to you to be encouraged and feel welcome. You mentioned earlier in our conversation previously that you have a connection with Dr. Michael Cooper, and I see with what you're doing now that you'll be a mentor for the next generation of younger people coming up through the industry as it goes. So you mentioned that you are involved with the Diversity Task Force also, not just the Millennial Task Force. Is that correct? Yes, yes. I'm involved with both. And Diversity Task Force actually is having a career fair in a couple of weeks, which is going to be at my alma mater, Hampton University. And so I definitely think there's buy-in all across the industry from all the allied organizations with a focus on being a bit more proactive and less passive and trying to make golf from an employment standpoint look a bit more like today's America. And I know you touched on it a bit earlier as far as mentorship and, and having examples and seeing people that come from backgrounds like you or that look like you in positions that you aspire to be in. And I know for me personally, when I started working at TPC Sawgrass, when, once they became aware of law school as an option for me, they set me up with Lynn Brown, who was the general counsel of PGA Tour. And so we, we had breakfast and, and I got to know him a bit. He was a Penn State football player and African-American and, and seeing where he was. And then, you know, after I enrolled in law school and then came back for a summer and worked in the LPGA's legal department, the head of the legal there, the general counsel was uh, Xandria Conyers. And she was an African-American woman. So uh, I've been very, very blessed and fortunate to see a lot of people in the golf industry itself that look like me, have backgrounds similar to me and, and have done big things in the industry. So like I said, I think that there's buy-in and there's opportunity. It's just about making sure that, that you're qualified and ready for whatever opportunities may come up for you. Right. And it's so encouraging to see over even the last six years that I've really been involved in the golf industry, that there has been this sea change, this welcoming, and not just talking about diversity, multiple groups acting on that. And you mentioned there with the job fair and a whole spectrum of initiatives that are out there. So rather than just that high level concept, actually making things happen and testing and experimenting with different things and engaging with younger people and diverse groups in our population, which is fantastic. So Jared, hey, let's switch back over to the Tea Time Coalition. My understanding, this is a partnership through the National Golf Course Owners Association and the PGA of America. So can you tell us about that and how the organization came to be and really what your why is and what, what it is that you actually do to help support the industry? Right, right. So the Tea Time Coalition is exactly that. It's a partnership between the NGCOA and the PGA of America. Being members-based organizations, responsive action to concerns of their members, of both NGCOA members and PGA of America. The members that we're talking about here are those that own and operate golf courses and PGA professionals, those that deal with vendors on a regular basis, those vendors being third-party software providers and tee time distributors. So anyone that's helping a golf course distribute their inventory online that shares access to their inventory. So golf course is going to have a point of sale system and then they're going to put their tee times online so that golfers can book everything mobile. And so what was happening with this relationship was that there was a growing concern amongst golf course operators, owners, and PGA professionals that some of the vendors didn't necessarily have golf course friendly practices and that they were making a lot of money at the expense of the golf course owners and operators. And it had been described almost as a parasitic relationship. And there was 
just a very contentious sense of things. And there was a growing tension between, and there's a divide between the vendors and those that own the inventory, you know, the, the operators and the PJ professionals. And we're just trying to decide what do we need to do? How do we fix this? And so in 2015, the NGCOA came up with some guidelines for online tea time distribution. And so it's an olive branch that was extended to the vendors, you know, some of the vendors that the operators and the PJ professionals had deemed were most, I'm not sure the word I want to use here, but but the ones that were causing the most concern and the most trouble. And so they actually signed off on this agreement, signed off on the guidelines, said, hey, we understand everything with this. We agree with the spirit of it. After that was signed, not much happened, not much changed from a business practice standpoint, and golf courses continued to struggle in managing that relationship. And so they brought me in to take the original guidelines and update them, turn them into standards for online tea time distribution, things that could be a step up from a guideline, something that you could hold the vendors accountable to. And really what the Tea Time Coalition wants to do ultimately, our, our seminal project is to become the consumer reports of the golf industry right. with regard to online tea time aggregators and software providers. So we want to make sure that owners and operators and PJ professionals have all the information they need so that when they evaluate this thing on a, an annual basis or whenever they're up for renewal, they're able to say, hey, this has been a profitable relationship for us or this has hasn't worked out for us in the way that we originally thought. We've actually lost money. Our, our revenue has gone down. Our Teton bookings have gone down. Or on the contrary, our Teton bookings have gone up, but our revenue has gone down. So it's just about trying to find that balance. And Teton Coalition exists for three-pronged sort of approach. One is to be an ombudsman working on behalf of golf course owners and operators. So that's at any time they may need some assistance. There's now someone that they can call physically here, handling it on a day-to-day basis. If there's anything that happens in your contract that is not the way it was originally supposed to go, I have contacts with all the companies. I can speak to them directly on the golf course's behalf. And being that we are backed by the PGA of America right, and the NGCOA, right. the vendors have been very good in working with us to help resolve any issues when they have come up. The second thing is providing education. A lot of the issues came about and a lot of the need for the coalition came from very savvy business operators and owners that just didn't have a full understanding and knowledge of what they were getting into. And so sort of a look back thing, you know, originally what sounded appeared to be a good deal two, three years down the line turned to be a disaster. So it's our job to provide the education they need. So one, they can make an informed decision. And two, that at the outset, they're able to analyze it and look at everything that they need to with regard to making a choice in vendor. Right. And then the last part of it is sort of that compliance, competitive balance side of things. In our creation of the standards, becoming a consumer reports, it will naturally balance out the competition. Those that are doing well will continue to do well. Those that do not practice business in the way that is in the spirit of our guidelines and standards of online tea time distribution, they'll naturally have to make change. And during that change process, they may see a fluctuation in their customer base, whether positively or negatively. That's something that's just going to be a natural occurrence. I mean, if Consumer Reports comes out with something that says the brakes are terrible on a Volkswagen, hopefully no one from Volkswagen is listening or takes any offense to it. Solely an example, but people are going to steer away from that and start to look at other things. So the coalition exists because we are listening to the concerns of our members. Now, when the concerns of our members are voiced through this consumer report, then the vendors, the onus will be on them to listen to how their customer base said they performed. 
And so now it'll be up to them to make their own changes. And that's really what it exists to, just to be in a vehicle of change and to move the industry in a place to where golf courses and vendors can thrive without there being some sort of feeling that it's a parasitic relationship or one party is really making a ton of money at the other's expense. The vendors will tell you it's a partnership and we want it to actually look like a partnership and feel like a partnership and not feel like something that is not good for golf courses. Right, right. I think that analogy you use there, that you're the consumer reports for the online tea time industry is a, is a great one. It's an easy one for our listeners to wrap their heads around to kind of see what you actually do there. So with that, I want to take a step back here, Jared, and give us a bit of a snapshot of the landscape of this industry of the online tea time world. Can you talk about what percentage of tea times right now are being booked year to year? Give us a bit of the the dashboard as far as some of the numbers and how many organizations or companies are in this space right now and what's the growth in this side of the industry. So yeah, share some numbers with us here, Jared. Right. So we, we like to compare what's going on in the golf industry with regard to online tea times and online tea time distribution, similarly to the hotel and hospitality industry. So I guess the, the best comparison would be the way that the hotels deal with the hot wires and the price lines of the world. So those are the third parties. So here in the golf space, the third parties from a tea time distribution standpoint are those, you know, like a golf now, teeoff.com, a golf book, golf 18 network, Supreme Golf, these websites that you can go online as a consumer and book a tea time. And from a consumer standpoint, it's just like Hotwire. You're looking for the best deal, and that's nothing wrong with that. But our goal, and at some point, we're going to have to figure out how we can effectively do it, is to educate the consumer as well as far as, hey, we understand that you are looking for the best deal, but let's help you understand what that means for the golf course. And oftentimes, these best deals are usually under a trade agreement. So in golf, unlike the hotel industry, so when the hotels work with a hot wire or something, they're usually working on a commission arrangement. Whereas here in the golf industry, when you see those super low deals for a foursome or something like that, the, the times that are most attractive to deal-seeking golfer, what you'll see is the golf vendor usually has control of that price to a certain extent. Now it's kind of backed up away from that, but at the outset, whenever this organization was started, a lot of the problem was that the full control of that price was with the vendor. And the reason being is that the vendor would provide distribution services, marketing services, and software sometimes for free. So the golf course wouldn't pay anything for that. They would basically pay them in trade. They'd say, hey, you don't have to pay us anything, but let us own X number of tee times per day. So for an entire foursome, we'll take all the revenue and a booking fee on top of that. So whatever they would make for that particular day, if they made that over 30 days, that would be what they would make a month from the golf course. Now, the golf course would never find out what that rate was, what rate it sold at. They would never find out how much they made on a monthly basis, on an annual basis. So there's really never a way for a golf course to truly know on a year-end basis whether or not the deal has been profitable for me. So say you worked with a company and you were just using their software and the software may cost you, I don't know, let's say $10,000, but you find out that in trading, the company made over $40,000 from you that year. So that's sort of where the rub came, trying to be more transparent in the information that they get. So there are comparisons to the hospitality industry and the hotel industry, but there are 
some huge differences that only happen in golf. And a lot of it started because golf courses were unwilling to pay in a traditional manner, like a cash or a commission for a lot of these things. And, and so those companies that I gave you uh, initially, those were on the distribution side. So you're really only talking about maybe five major players on that space, whereas the, the software side of things, that is the companies that will provide you a point of sale system and a T-sheet, which now just about every golf course needs. We're moving in a strictly mobile age. So every golf course needs to move from a pen and paper T-sheet to an electronic T-sheet. It's just much easier and cleaner, generally speaking. So in that space, you're looking at probably 10 to 12 companies that are major players in that space. It'll be a little bit lengthy to name and without trying to leave out anyone. It's top heavy on the distribution side, whereas on the software side, it's a little top heavy, but it's still a bit more balanced as far as the customer base goes and the market share on that side of things. And just thinking about it, why it's important to have an electronic T-sheet now we want to grow golf. You know, it's 2018. Everything is mobile nowadays, especially when you think about the way millennials book and really everyone books. Just about everyone has an iPhone. Even the older generation has an iPhone. So everybody has an iPhone. Everyone's booking mobile. So right now in the golf industry, only 20% of our tee times are booked online. So you may say, okay, well, it's just 20%. That's not bad. The room for growth is immense there when you look at other areas of hospitality, whether it's hotels or airlines. Airlines are in the high 90% range as far as booked online or mobile. I mean, when's the last time you actually called or, or walked up for a ticket? I mean, some people do it as far as booking your airline reservations, but probably 95% of people are going to book their airline online or through a mobile device. It's not happening generally over the phone or walking up. Sure. Whereas in golf, over the phone and walk up still today in 2018 is the most prevalent way that golf is booked. So it's important that from a tee time booking standpoint, that there's a lot of options for golf courses to choose from and that those options are good, not only for the consumer, but also for the golf course itself. I find that amazing. It's only 20%. I would have thought if you would have bet me a beer, I would have guessed at least 40 to 50% in that range there. The fact that it's quite low, I find industry. And I do know from the work that I do in the industry and also with the podcast that golf is slow in a lot of spaces to embrace innovation and change in technology. But yeah, 20%, gosh, I thought it would be higher than that. And with your insights there, Jared, why do you think that is? Is, is that because of the onboarding of the golf club owners or is it on the consumer, the actual golfer side, or is it some combination thereof as far as onboarding? There's this graphic, this curve with a hump in the middle that is very low at, at the beginning, the technology adoption curve, they call it, Jared. So you got the innovators at the beginning and the early adopters and the late adopters, and then the laggards at the back end, people that will never adopt. They'd rather have a rotary phone <laughs> attached to their wall rather than an iPhone still if they could, right? And those people will never change. <laughs> but you get all those people at the very beginning there, those early adopters, those pioneers, those are the people that years ago used to wait in the rain for 24 hours outside of a, an Apple store to wait for a phone, even though they can get it the next day. <laughs> so it seems like golf is still in that early adoption phase. So can you maybe shed some light on why that isn't higher? Or why do you think it's only at 20% rather than higher right now? I think we're just slow to change. Uh, golf is a very traditionalist kind of way of doing things. And really, if you look at the history of online tea times and distribution, we actually have on our website, teatimecoalition.org slash history, we've got a timeline of the last 30 years of golf tea times as far as everything has been booked. When the first tea times book and the first software system came out. So you're talking about like 1990, which is pretty early. It's not that long ago. Like I can still remember a lot from 1990. Like, whereas you look at some of these other industries, 
we didn't have electronic t-sheets until 91 something like golf now didn't exist until the gosh let me see late 90s i mean golf channels in 95 I'm looking at the history right now. I'm looking at that page. I will make sure for our listeners, I will include the link to this Tea Time Coalition history page. Yeah, this timeline graphic here is great. It really gives you a snapshot of where the industry has been and where it is now. Once again, a 20% there. Just curious to know what pain points, what barriers there are that prevent the adoption of being even higher or even faster to accelerate that. So we're where the airline industry is. Do you think one reason is like the age of the average player skews a bit older? So their technology adoption is not as high as the general population and especially not as high as millennials? Possibly, but I think we are in the tech age where people are certainly embracing technology a lot more than they had previously. The first online reservation was was in late 1999 with last minute tea times. But if I just think about golf from embracing technology standpoint, a lot of it I think has to do with technology comes with a price sometimes. And right. I mean, if you think about golf carts that have GPS on them, I mean, it'd be awesome to have that all the time everywhere, but every golf course isn't built the same. There's a lot of differences. And so there's so much fragmentation in the industry that in order for us to have adoption of a certain method or style of booking, it would sort of have to be using the same system, same way, same type of thing all across the board. Every company or facility operates differently and they use different things. I mean, there's some courses that will only use a software system, some courses that are using a software system and distributing their tea times online. Some courses only put their tea times in one place. I don't know if you can really pinpoint one thing as to why it's been so slow as far as moving towards a more online bookings, but it could just be traditionalist way of thing. I mean, even me being on the back end of a millennial, I rarely book tea times online, even with my position and everything. I grew up in an era where you pick up the phone and you call the golf shop and you say, do you have anything on X day at X time? Really? Yeah. Well, so you're part of the problem, not the solution. So you're a complete <laughs> hypocrite then here. I, I am. I am. I, you're I undermining say. the industry there, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, know, I need to. I, so yeah, I, maybe, maybe the question is, why not me? What do I need to do to help get it to 21% or, or what have you? Also know that just from talking to owners and operators, there's some things that may not show up online that when you're just talking to someone that show up as far as availability and rates and a number of things. So I, I've just always been more comfortable calling and finding out what I'm dealing with before I get up there. But I definitely can move, can work on my end to help bump that number up. That's going to be a goal of mine for 2019. Book more tea times online. Okay, I'll, I'll be watching you. I'll be asking you again in the future. I want to see some improvement on your end. <laughs> Sounds like you're almost a laggard, I guess you can say. You're not quite there yet. But I would think that for the golf course owners and operators, they would be heavily incentivized. You want to increase that number because, as you know, then they have that database. They have that ability for post-round engagement to deepen that relationship rather than that person just disappearing into the ether. If they've booked their time in the old-fashioned way, they don't have the ability to engage with them on that deeper level. Oh. Oh, yeah. So I'm quite surprised that golf course owners aren't stepping up and making a point of increasing that number from 20% as quickly as they possibly can. Oh, yeah. I definitely think data capture is one of the top things that is preached and that golf course operators and PGA professionals are embracing because when you work with a vendor to handle a portion of your online bookings, a lot of times only one player, the player who booked the reservations name will appear. So it'll be 
Williams and then three other people or no information may appear if it's one of those times that is owned by the vendor. So yeah. they're preaching and, and they're embracing the idea that you've got to, at the counter, capture as much data as you can. So that is something that they're doing. And so I'd imagine even if I called and they got my information over the phone, I sort of was a phone booker, not an online booker. They would still be tasked with at the counter, making sure that they got my information. But as you said, it's so much easier and would take a step out of it if I had come through and already entered my information online, especially if you're talking about trying to make sure you capture all the data you need, but doing it on a busy Saturday morning. It's something that sometimes can get pushed to the back burner but it shouldn't because it's that important, especially from an engagement standpoint. I know when we're on the millennial task force, we're always talking about, okay, it's one thing to make sure that we get the millennial or the, the new golfer to the facility, but it's also just as important about that messaging on the back end. Hey, welcome back, come back. Here's a coupon for a free beer. Here's a coupon for a hot dog and a sleeve of balls. Come on back. If you don't have the information to contact them, then you've missed out on an opportunity to keep that new golfer engaged. I mean, they're guaranteed to hit one shot that's going to get you coming back. It's that shot that's like, now you see what I'm talking about. Now you see why I'm out here hitting balls all the time because it's that feeling of that good shot, like it can be done. So if you lose that, then you can potentially lose that golfer. And the NGF says it's what, 6.2 million millennials that are playing, which is 28% of the golf community. So they're going to play 100 million rounds of golf. And, and if we just leave it at that and we don't take control of that messaging and try to get back to then you're missing out on a, a nice piece of revenue there that can yeah. lift the industry as a whole. You made a great insight there too with the numbers. I didn't really think about it that way. It's not just a, a loss of one person by going with more of an analog rather than a digital onboarding and booking. But you're right, you lose that opportunity. It's, it's a 4X, a four times multiplier loss because you don't have the information on anybody in the foursome, not just the one person. Do you think that would be even a, a greater call to action for the industry to giddy up and get that 20% even higher than it is? So, hey, hey I wanted to do a slight pivot here. You did start to talk about the Millennial Task Force and your work with that. So a couple of minutes I have still with you here, Jared. Can you talk a bit about the Millennial Task Force, what the overarching vision of that is and its reason for existing and some examples of the work that you're doing with the task force there too? Yeah. So the Millennial Task Force is underneath the umbrella of We Are Golf, and it takes a bunch of the uh, millennial leaders at various allied associations. So we've got representatives from USGA, Buffalo Agency, Next Generation Golf, LPGA, PGA Tour, PGA of America. Did I say Top Golf? We actually have a former LPGA Tour Pro on it. So a lot of the movers and shakers, young folks that are in leadership positions in golf that are tasked with addressing some of the issues that I talked about earlier. Okay, how do we increase the millennial participation in the game? How do we not only get them introduced to the game, but also get them interested in and willing to come back to a facility for golf. So a lot of times we look at, okay, what are the general interests of millennials? And then how can we place golf within those general interests from an introductory standpoint? And then from that, work on the messaging and things that we need to do to get them either to a facility again or to a facility for the first time. So we're looking at like college football tailgates, college game day, and huge millennial participation, South by Southwest concerts, music festivals, celebrity golf tournaments foot golf, races, anything that a facility can do to get new golfers to the facility. And it doesn't have to be just millennials, but focus obviously is on millennials, but it's about getting them there and then figure out how do we can convert them into golfers that can be included in that number that I alluded to earlier that the NGF had come up with those 6.2 million participants. 
those are the things we look for. And millennials doing everything on their phone. You want to make sure you have a mobile friendly website, can book the tea time in a number of ways and that your facility is doing other things to get non-golfers to your facility. One thing you mentioned to me in a previous conversation, you also said aligning millennials or aligning golf by highlighting celebrity participation and the influencers that are playing golf, because that connects and resonates, of course, more from a lifestyle point of view. Can you talk a bit about the work that you're doing there with celebrities and influencers? Glenn and Chris, who head up the millennial group, they are pretty active in that. And we actually have Paige Spiranak, who's a huge IG influencer, Instagram influencer. She's on the Millennial Task Force as well. It's any people that are personalities that love the game and that can promote for us for free on, on their own. Someone like Steph Curry, anything that he's doing, we're trying to figure out ways that we can leverage that or his interest in the game. So it's athletes, celebrities, influencers, a number of things. What we do for the Millennial Task Force is not brand new, but it's also about trying to let the game speak for itself and work for itself. So I kind of think about it like one thing that was really cool. I thought a story I like to share. When I was at the LPGA, at the end of my time there, they asked us to find a way to make LPGA more appealing to millennials, especially young girls, young women. And so I always thought, man, what's the the most popular group as far as influencers goes with celebrities for for young women? And definitely probably the Kardashians, right? So I said, well, at the time, their father played golf avidly all the time. And so I said, why don't you just send him some tickets and then let that be something that he would attend the tournament and they would film it and the girls might come out and Instagram it and show them in a cute golf outfit. They're enjoying themselves out there and and making the game look fun, making it look interesting, showing everyone how good these girls are and, and how fun it is to be out there. That was one thing that similar to what we try to do now at the Millennium Task Force is just finding ways to not only have us being the megaphone saying how cool and fun golf is and how you should be involved in it, which is kind of what we do at South by Southwest. We'll have a couple of Millennial Task Force members on a panel out there where they're talking about the game. And instead of us just being the megaphone for that, it's also letting celebrities through their natural and organic post about the game speak on our behalf. And then we'll also pull them aside at different events and get a quick soundbite or an interview with them to say what the game has meant to them and, and how it's helped them. And right now we are in an age where influence is heavy and people are wanting to do the things that those they look up to are doing and interested in. And so we always try to align ourselves with some of the celebrity influencers and things like that. Well, that network effect is huge, as you very well know there through the influencers. You engage their fan base and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I want to be like Steph. I want to go hit some golf balls. And it doesn't necessarily have to be on the golf course. And I love the fact that the work that you're doing with the Millennial Task Force and We Are Golf, getting rid of that traditional golf mindset of where golf was, like I like to put it, a switch. Either it's on or off. Either you're not playing or you're playing 18 holes and you have to card a score to go to your handicap. Otherwise, people consider, no, 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 that's not golf. Where, of course, as Jared, as we very well know now, and it's only happened over the last few years, that that's loosened up. Even if it's playing half a dozen holes or playing nine or going to top golf or these other immersive entertainment experiences that you can do that are golf centric, even besides top golf, as an onboarding, as a gateway for golf. I think that's really exciting and it sounds like you are fully embracing that and promoting that also. Definitely. It's all about coming up with those creative ways to get them to the facility. I know you were talking about it, those immersive ways. Yep. Like foot golf would being one of them. Maybe we can can work to get someone, an NFL kicker or some soccer player or something, get them introduced to foot golf. And maybe if they already were or weren't a golfer, we can help convert them into golfers. 
going to ask you this. I've never asked this question. What we do with our company, not only in the golf innovation space, but the overall sport innovation space, we've been involved with esports for many years and looking at the cross-pollination between real sports, you want to call bricks and mortar sports for lack of a better term, and esports and the popularity of Madden and NBA and NHL that you have and even having tournaments and now content created, whether it's through Twitch, and as you know, with these tournaments, and there's tens of millions of people that watch these world-class tournaments. Do you engage at all with the golf esports side, looking at possibility of yet another way to get more people into golf by starting that way and then getting them in the golf funnel? Is that something with esports and golf that you guys are even looking at? That's actually a really good question. I think it'd be cool. I mean, I know a lot of times, or at least I can say my friend, he has a son that's like every kid nowadays. They're all into this Fortnite craze and the whole deal about driving the golf cart on the game. Apparently there's some area in the game that you can drive a golf cart. And so he wanted to come out to the golf course with us just so he could drive the golf cart. Uh-huh. And so I said, come on. So he drove the golf cart just because he wanted to see what it felt like in real life after being in the game. And then obviously being out there and seeing us hit golf balls, then he started hitting some shots and playing he sort of got into golf through Fortnite. so with some actual golf based games i guess it used to be called tiger woods but i guess it's like pga tour the ea sports game i definitely think there's an opportunity there the gaming world is is huge it's, it's not only huge from a population size but it's, it's huge economically right now so i definitely think there's an opportunity that can tap in there for sure and plus, video games are a really cool way to learn the rules of sports. Yeah, I know I didn't really know a whole lot of the rules about soccer in detail until I started playing FIFA. So as nuanced as the rules of golf are to allow games to be a nice conduit and introduction on a fun level where it's not formulaic and, and rigid, I think that would be a cool thing that we could definitely embrace as an industry, looking at those that are interested in golf video games and then trying to say, hey, so you like to play the game, but you don't like to play the sport. Well, well why not? You know, I definitely think there's an opportunity there. I agree. I think your Fortnite example is a great one there. I have a 13-year-old son that, if he could, would spend every waking hour playing Fortnite. And I actually look (laughs) over his shoulder and I see him driving around in a golf cart too. So I like that onboarding story that, that, yeah, that he wanted to come out to the golf course and drive the cart. Next thing you know, he's swinging a club for the first time. So uh, who knows? Maybe Fortnite will be the savior of golf and we didn't even know it. (laughs) Joking aside, but seriously, those are just other great ways that gets someone interested and on the golf course for the first time. That, That is awesome. It's really good stuff. Yes, I'm all, I'm all for from sitting out in front watching Fortnite all day long. We want to get more in real life. Get them on the golf course. Yeah. So hey, why don't we finish up here? This has been a great conversation, Jared. Thanks so much for your time today. Before I do let you go, can you do a little bit of promotion for both the Tea Time Coalition and also the Millennial Task Force? Can you please tell our listeners where they can find out more information about both of those great things that you're working on? If you want to find out more about the Tea Time Coalition, you can go to www.teatimecoalition.org. There's resources there, there's video, there's news articles, the actual guidelines that we use, and the standards will be there when they are ready. But that has all the information you need on everything you want to know about Tea Time bookings and distribution and how it all works. There's a timeline on there that'll help you and walk you through it if you want to learn about it. If you have any questions, also my email address is on there. Happy to uh, explain it to you and answer any questions that you might have. Again, this organization just mainly exists with the goal to keep golf course owners and operators, PJ professionals informed and aware of what's going on and making sure that they have ownership over their tee time inventory and that vendors are distributing their inventory in the way that the golf courses want that inventory distributed. 
The other organization that I'm here representing is the Millennial Task Force. It's under the We Are Golf umbrella. That Millennial Task Force is led by Glenn Gray and Chris Hart. And if you want to find out more about what we're doing, some of the events that we're going to be at, some of the really cool places that you might happen to find golf where you weren't expecting to find it, you can go to wearegolf.org and find out all that information there. Uh, We have a lot planned for you for the end of 18, and we're working on our plans for 2019 as well. It's going to be a fun year. Good stuff. All right. Well, we'll end with that. So, hey, Jared Williams, Managing Director of the Golf USA Tea Time Coalition and an advisor for We Are Golf's Millennial Task Force. I really appreciate your time today. I will make sure that in our show notes for this particular episode, all of the links that Jared just mentioned, I will put those there to make it conveniently easy for you to click on those to find out more. And also in Jared's guest bio page, I will also include the information, including his email address. So I will try to make it as easy as possible, just like Jared is working to make tea time booking as easy as possible. So uh, Jared, hey, thanks so much for your time today. It's been great talking to you. I really enjoyed it, Colin. Thank you so much. Uh, You're welcome. All right. Bye for now. We'll talk soon. All right. Have a good one. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jared Williams as much as I did. If you'd like to learn more about the work Jared does as both Managing Director of the Golf USA Tea Time Coalition and as an advisor for We Are Golf's Millennial Task Force, go to our episode page for images and links. I'd like to extend my gratitude and thanks to our sponsor partners Fairway IQ, British Columbia Golf, and Nextlinks for helping make the Mod Golf podcast happen. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these stories from the golf industry's brightest innovators and influencers. Please join me next time as I speak with Golf Genius CEO Mike Sisman, when we'll hear how he combines his love for golf and passion for information technology to help revolutionize the golf industry. If you enjoyed my conversation with Jared, you can find more of our golf innovation stories on previous episodes at www.mod.golf or search Mod Golf Podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate, review, and subscribe to our show. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye for now.